Well, as we've uh, just prayed in the song, would you please take up your Bibles and turn to page 1128? Page 1128. We'll be looking at just two verses for our text this morning Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. And as you look that up, can I just thank you again for your very warm welcome to me this morning. It's a privilege to be with you. Uh, Thank you for making me feel so at home. I've decided to take this, uh, this passage from Romans because really the whole book of Romans is about mission, is about taking the gospel to people who don't yet know the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, at the start of a mission week, that's foremost in my mind. But really, I suppose, I hope that one of the things we're going to see this morning is that whoever we are and at whatever stage we're at, this should always be something that's in our minds, the good news of Jesus Christ and taking it to people who don't yet know it. If you're not a Christian here this morning and you're coming along to investigate and to find out something a bit more, perhaps you're wondering why it is that Christians you've met want to speak about this so-called good news. What is the good news? Well, in these few verses, Paul outlines very clearly for us what this gospel, what this good news that we have really is. At the time of writing, Rome, as you probably know, was the center of the known world. It was the capital of the Roman Empire. And so it's no exaggeration to say that what happened in Rome reverberated across the known world. That's certainly been the case even for the faith of the church. Have a look at Romans chapter 1, verse 8. Paul writes Romans 1, verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. A church has started to take root in Rome, and because of their faith in uh, the gospel, and because of the trade routes and the connections with ideas going out through the Roman Empire, people all over the world, Paul's not exaggerating, all over the world are starting to hear something of the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at these two verses as we read them and see what it is, as Paul puts it very succinctly, what this gospel, this good news is. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Why don't you follow it with me? Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. They're great verses. Let's uh, unpack them as we go through. Central to understanding these verses, I think, is this whole context that the book of Romans is all about taking the gospel to people who don't yet know it. Paul wants the Christians in Rome to live confident, assured Christian lives to not be ashamed of the gospel so that as they witness to people in Rome and as the people of Rome connect and interact and travel out from Rome, the gospel will go to the very ends of the earth. That is Paul's agenda. More immediately as well, Paul has an agenda as we would find out if we look later in chapter 15 of Romans. He's traveling on his way through Rome onto Spain and he wants the Roman church to be a sending church to support him in prayer and finance and in practicalities to enable him to kick on and to take the gospel to unreached parts of Europe into Spain and beyond. 
So Paul's whole concern is that this church in Rome would be united with him in the gospel and in doing that would be part of this great missionary endeavor that Paul has to take the gospel to all peoples. So that whoever people are, whether they're from a different creed or race or color or tongue, they would have an opportunity to hear the fantastic news about Jesus Christ. Which then makes the way that Paul phrases this first sentence a little bit odd, don't you think? Verse 16, I am not ashamed. That's a strange way to put it, isn't it? Why doesn't Paul say, I'm confident? Why doesn't he say, I rejoice in the gospel? Why doesn't he say the gospel's fantastic? Why does he say, I am not ashamed of the good news? You'll know as well as I do that when you put something in that kind of negative form, it begs the question, doesn't it? I'm not ashamed. Oh, why would you be ashamed, Paul? Would immediately be the question. So why does Paul put it this way? Why does he expect that we would feel some degree of embarrassment and shame about the gospel? I am not ashamed. I wonder when the last time you felt embarrassed, overwhelmed, ill-equipped for a task. I have to say, I always feel like that going into a, uh, into a talk about the Christian faith. I always feel a little bit embarrassed about the gospel. I just want to come out and say that clearly now because I think and I hope that other people feel that way as well. Because it seems that Paul expects a degree of embarrassment when the gospel is concerned. Not so long ago, uh, good friends of mine asked me to be a godfather to their second son, which I thought was quite a leap of faith on their behalf. But anyway, they asked me to be a godfather to their second son. And uh, he was about two months old, and I traveled up to see my friends Phil and Katie. And uh, I wandered in to see them, and we greeted them, and it was lovely to see them. And then they said, well, of course, you'll be wanting to meet your godson, won't you? So I said, yeah, it'd be great to meet him. So... They took me over to the cot, and they said, Pete, this is your godson, Eddie. Eddie kind of lay there as babies do, gargling a bit and wiggling a little bit. And Katie said, why don't you hold him, Pete? Nightmare. Why don't you hold him? What do you do with a baby? Now, I, I had some kind of recollection that my mum, a number of years ago, obviously mums like to prepare you for things like this. They don't. She, said, she said, whenever you hold a newborn baby, I'm not sure when she told me this, but she did. Whenever you hold a newborn baby, make sure you cradle its head because newborn babies, their necks are very weak. Now, I didn't know what would happen if I didn't cradle his head, but I didn't want to find out. So, I was, so Katie, the mother, in an astonishing act of faith, she gave me my godson, Eddie Jack. His surname's Eddie. So uh, his first name's Eddie, his surname's Jack. So I was holding him, one hand underneath his body like that, one hand cradling his head. I thought, now, um, some of you who've had children are shaking your heads at this point, thinking <laughs> you're seeing my first day. So anyway, so I was holding it, and Katie then said the very oddest thing. She said, I'm going to leave you two to get to know each other for a little bit. <laughs> so she left the room. Phil, her husband, had already left the room as well, so they were both out the room, and there I was with my godson. He's wiggling a little bit, and we're kind of wandering around, and you know, I'm just hoping he doesn't cry. And he's, you know, he's doing all right. But after a period, because this, this is a very awkward position to hold a baby in, my arm starts to cramp. Well, what do you do? I didn't know how I could put him down safely, so I'm thinking, this is, this is a real problem. What am I going to do? And my, 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 uh, you know when you cramp that your muscles start to shake a little bit? So Eddie started to stir, and I thought, oh, he's going to start crying. This is going to, uh, it's not good, not a good. Then, and this doesn't happen often, I had a brilliant idea. I realized that my godson, Eddie Jack, at the age of two months, was about the same size as a rugby ball. <laughs> so I figured I could carry him like a rugby ball, so I popped him under my arm. He was fine, he was very happy, he was wiggling a bit, but I've got a good grip. So anyway, he was holding it there, so Eddie's wiggling a bit. Now, after a few minutes, Katie decided we'd had long enough getting to know each other, so she wandered back into the room. 
Her eyes were pretty wide. She said to me in a very kind tone, but slightly panicking, Pete, what are you doing with my son? And I related to her what had just happened. I said, well, Katie, I was holding him and it was a bit awkward. I didn't know what to do. My arms were cramping. Then I decided that your son, my godson, is about the same size as a rugby ball. So I popped him under my arm to hold him like a rugby ball. He's happy. I'm happy. We're all happy. At that moment, Phil, the father, is in the other room and he runs into the living room and he grabs his son off me, which was a little bit odd. So I was a bit offended at this. So I looked at him and I said, Phil, what's wrong? He said, mate, you forget, I've played rugby with you and I know what your handling skills are like. (laughs) Needless to say, when it comes to holding children now, I let my wife, who's uh, trained to be a doctor, do it. She's much more capable than I am. When was the last time you felt overwhelmed for a task, embarrassed at your inability to do it? Because Paul expects that when it comes to sharing the gospel, we will all feel a degree of embarrassment. And you don't have to go far in our secular culture today to know why that is, don't you? So many of the core truths of the Christian message seem embarrassing. People tell us that they're outdated, that they've got no place in a modern liberal society, that we've done away with God, we don't need a God now. Science has explained away God. And on, in, against all of that weight of pressure, we feel a bit embarrassed. But it's always been that way. It's not just the differences of a secular culture today. It's always been that the Christian message is inherently embarrassing to human beings. And yet Paul wants to confront that and give us three reasons in this, three reasons why we should not be embarrassed, we should not be ashamed of the gospel. And that's what I want to spend most of our time this morning looking at, three reasons that we should not be ashamed of the gospel. The first one is the power of the gospel. The second one is the content of the gospel. And the third one, if you'll excuse my English, is the freeness of the gospel. The power of the gospel, the content of the gospel, and the freeness of the gospel. Let's have a look at this first one the power of the gospel. Paul writes, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Notice what the gospel is powerful to do. The gospel is powerful, it says, for salvation or unto salvation or powerful to save. Now, straight away, this, of course, presupposes that we need saving. And there is a source of embarrassment because we don't like being told that we need saving. You see, we might want to admit that we've got some problems in our lives, mightn't we? We might want to say that there are things that I've done in my past that I'm not proud of. We might want to confess that, yeah, there are some problem areas. There are things that I find difficult. There are parts of my personality and my conduct that I'm not particularly proud of. But don't imply that I need saving, surely. Because to imply that I need saving implies two things. First, it implies that there is a problem that I have, and secondly, that that problem is beyond my own capability to fix. And that, quite frankly, is a little bit insulting, isn't it? That I have a problem? Well, what problem? And that the problem is so severe that I can't fix it. That is what is required for us to know that we need saving. That is the starting point of the gospel, and that's a little bit embarrassing. You see, I suppose if we were to say today to people that you've got a problem and that you can't fix your problem, they would say, mate, (laughs) don't be insulting to me. In the 70s and 80s, a book was written called I'm Okay, You're Okay. It was an international bestseller. Perhaps you've read it. And the thesis of the book went like this. Health in relationships, psychological health, comes from knowing that I'm okay and that you're okay. And when we're both on that level playing field, then we can have a healthy you know, a conducive relationship. 
But, it argued, there are two sources of psychological ill health. First of all, thinking that I'm not okay, or secondly, thinking that you're not okay. So we just need to think that we're both all okay, and then we'll be happy. Now, it's a very prevalent view, isn't it? And against that backdrop, when you say to someone you need saving, it's tantamount to saying you are psychologically unhealthy. And that is insulting. People don't like that. When I have to speak to my friends about the gospel, this starting point is a huge barrier to them. I have one friend who says to me, mate, if the criteria for getting into heaven was being a good bloke, would I get into heaven? I have to say to him, mate, that's not the criteria for getting into heaven. And yes, I do think you're a good bloke, but it's not my opinion that matters. It's God's opinion. And God says, you're not okay. The starting point of the gospel is that we have a moral problem with God that we cannot fix. God is perfect, and we are pretty far from perfect. And that as we fall short of God's perfect moral standard, there is a consequence for that. It is called guilt, and God is angry about it. That is the starting point of the gospel. But you see, it's only once you start to grasp the starting point of the gospel that you see the gospel, the good news, is powerful to save. If you like, you have to go through the pain barrier to grasp what good news this really is. Because it's as you start to grasp that you're not okay, that you're not perfect, that you fall short in ways that you don't even know, but certainly some in ways that you do, that you don't even keep your own standards, let alone God's. As you start to grasp that, and you start to see that no amount of effort or sincerity or trying hard or trying to turn over a new leaf or brush up your act is going to cut it with God because you're falling short all the time. You and I need saving. And the gospel is powerful once we start to grasp that. Notice that Paul doesn't say the gospel will give you power. Notice that he doesn't say the gospel is a way to get power. Notice that he says the gospel, the good news, is God's power. Because when you start to grasp this, then the power of the gospel is unleashed. I mentioned earlier in the interview that when I was at university, I wasn't a Christian. And to be honest, I thought that if there was a God, he would be pretty thrilled to have me on his team. Because I was such a good bloke. And I was quite popular, and I was sporty, and I thought I was doing pretty well. I thought, surely if there's a God, a bit like Mick Dundee in Crocodile Dundee, he once said, me and God will be mates. I thought, yeah, me and God, we'd be mates. Surely God made me. He's got to be pretty impressed with me, hasn't he? After all, everyone else is. That sounded pretty self-righteous. But so many people, and all of us by our nature, think like that. But then I started to see the way that my life was frayed at the edges. Then I started to see the person of Jesus Christ and his perfect moral standard. And I compared myself against Jesus, and I thought, I am nothing like him. He is perfect, and I am far from perfect. Then I started to grasp the guilt that I should be feeling, and whether I felt or not that was there for my failure to live to God's standard. Then I started to grasp the wrath of God that was rightfully coming my way for my failure to live in a loving relationship with God, doing what he says. And at that moment, the most remarkable thing happened. I didn't get up early enough this morning, but if you have been up on one of those mornings when it's dark and the clouds are maybe overhead, and then just as the sun comes up, the clouds spread aside, and the light of the sun just pierces through everything, and suddenly the land is lit up. It's the nearest illustration I can think of for what it was like when I grasped 
that I was not the person I should be and that I needed saving. At that moment, the gospel of grace, light just shed forth in my heart and I could suddenly see it so clearly that I needed saving and the good news of Jesus was the only way. The gospel broke into my heart. The power of the gospel was unleashed. And when I started to feel it like that, and if you're sitting here as a Christian this morning, that must have happened to you. It could have happened slowly and gradually over a period of time, or it might have happened suddenly like it did with me. The outward form is not important, but that has happened to you. You know the gospel works because it has saved you. Now, doesn't that bolster your confidence? If the gospel has saved you and you know the depth of your depravity, don't you think it can save other people? The gospel is powerful to save. And just as an aside, the gospel's always been unpopular in its starting point. When Paul was writing this, the kind of Greco-Roman worldview through Plato's philosophy and Aristotelian ethics was that man was fundamentally good and he was going to get better if you just gave him time. Does that sound familiar? It's always been that way. People have always thought that if we brush up our act or believe some new doctrine that we can kind of earn our way to God or we can certainly morally self-improve. The gospel's always been countercultural. But Paul's writing to people who have been saved and therefore he can save them. Don't you know in your own experience that the gospel is powerful to save? First reason to be confident, not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is powerful to save. The power of the gospel. Second reason, the content of the gospel. Notice that Paul is talking about the content of the gospel because he says in verse 17, for in the gospel... There is something in the gospel that is to give us confidence. And what is it? Verse 17, in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The content of the gospel, if I can put it like this, is what gives the gospel its power. The content of the gospel here is righteousness. Now, righteousness, as you know, is a bit of a technical biblical word. A close approximation for us today would be to say rightness. And rightness can speak of either our relationship with God being on a right standing or God's own character in the sense that God is faithful and just and always keeps his word and never does what he says he won't do. God is faithful and just. It could mean either of those. But here, I think, if you look at it with me, that it's talking about our relationship to God because it is a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. It is something that is given to us and we receive by faith. Now, Paul, of course, is just outlining a thesis at this point, and he will go on in the rest of the book of Romans to unpack what righteousness is. But rightness, as we see later on in the uh, letter of Romans, at least as a starting point, is to have the slate wiped clean. Turn forward with me to chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. To have the slate wiped clean. Romans 3, verse 23. Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. And that word you may know is the same word in the original as righteous. It means to be made righteous and are made righteous freely by his grace through the redemption of that came by Christ Jesus. So we are made right, we are made righteous by God's grace, by his unmerited favor. But that only takes up to chapter four in the book of Romans. 
And chapters 5 to 8 push it on and explain that the concept of being right with God is more, if I can put it than this, more than just being not guilty. More than just having the slate wiped clean. There is more to it than even that. You say more than that? Yes, there is even more than that. Let me try and explain a little bit about what I mean by that. Imagine someone went to prison, uh, that they'd stolen something, and so they went away for two years. Now, and after two years, they were released from prison, so they wandered out. They are no longer guilty. The slate has been wiped clean in that, in that sense, hasn't it? But when they leave prison, though they're no longer guilty under society and under the law, they still have a problem. They go back to their family. Maybe their family doesn't trust them anymore. They go to get a job. Maybe people won't employ them anymore because they see they've got a criminal record. The person who is released is no longer guilty, but he or she now feels like they have to demonstrate that they really are a reformed character. So many people think the Christian life is like that. God wipes the slate clean for us, and then we have to try to demonstrate that we are reformed characters. The slate is clean. Now what do I do with a clean slate? Well, I try and add my good works onto it, don't I? I try to show God that I'm really sincere about the forgiveness that he's shown me in Christ. That is not the gospel. That is only half of the gospel. Because as Paul moves on in his argument in Romans, turn to chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. There is more to righteousness than just the slate being wiped clean. Romans chapter 5 on page 1,132. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified, made right through faith, what do we have? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then this is the crucial bit. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Righteousness doesn't just mean the slate's wiped clean. Righteousness means grace, love, acceptance, unmerited favor. And we stand in that. It is permanent. It is given to us. It will never be taken away. So that for the prisoner who walks free, it is as if he received the pardon. He is free, no longer guilty. But then he also has a good account given to him. So that when people look at him, they no longer see a criminal. They see him as being perfect, as having a perfect moral track record. He doesn't have to earn the approval of his employer or his family. He has unconditional love and acceptance. That is the message of the gospel. And as Paul develops this theme, he comes to a crescendo in chapter 8 where he explains that we are counted as sons with a father in heaven. We are loved by God. This is the full measure of what it means to understand the content of the gospel. We start off as en enemies of God and by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his blood wipes the slate clean and his good account comes in our stead so that when God looks at us he doesn't really see us he sees Jesus Christ and his perfect moral track record and so he can say of us this is my son whom I love with him I am well pleased I mean do you grasp this God could not be more pleased with you right now I don't know what you've had over the last week I don't know what thoughts have raced through your mind I don't know how guilty you feel how unclean you feel God knows, and when he looks at you, he could not love you any more. And he will never love you any less. This is righteousness. It is an incredible thing. I was trying to think of how I could bring the emotional force of this home, because so easily we get too familiar with it, don't we? And we, it loses a bit of its weight. A friend of mine, not so long ago, was telling me he's a, uh, a missionary out in Africa, 
and was telling me that in the village that, um, uh, that he's heard of, uh, where one of the places where they've been witnessing out there, it's, it's quite disturbing. That it's the common practice that they want a male heir to carry on the family line, that often daughters are weaker and so therefore don't contribute as much economically to the family. So if it's a question of uh, which child you would rather, you would rather a, uh, a son than a daughter, sadly. He said that one day he was um, up in that village and uh, he was speaking to a, uh, a person there who'd adopted a child, a child called Grace, a little girl. And he asked them how, uh, how they came by Grace. And uh, the story goes that one day this Christian family were wandering through the village and they heard the sound of crying, of a baby crying. They wandered down the hill a little bit and they came to where the toilets in the village are, the long drop toilets. And they heard crying coming from in the toilet. And I'm sorry, it's a bit disturbing. But they realized that the crying of the baby was coming from inside the long drop toilet. Someone obviously had not wanted a daughter and had just thrown her away. So the father of the Christian family went and got his wife and got some help and got a rope. And he lowered himself on a rope down into the depths of the filth, into the long drop toilet. And he pulled this baby out. And as he got her out, he took to the doctor, he washed her clean. But then he adopted her. And the only name he could think of most fitting for her was Grace. Because as a Christian, he said it was the most powerful example of what Jesus Christ has done for us. The Bible, doesn't it not say that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags to God? That when God looks at us, no matter even our good efforts, are filthy before God. They're nothing before him. And God wipes off all of the moral filth. He wipes us clean, but he doesn't just leave us there to fend for ourselves. He then adopts us and brings us into his family, giving us the Holy Spirit. As Romans chapter 8 puts it, the spirit of sonship, by which we cry, Abba, Daddy, Father. God is our Father in heaven because of the work of Jesus Christ. That is grace. That is righteousness. That is the full measure of the content of the gospel. It is an incredible thing. And when you start to grasp it, when it starts to impact your heart, isn't there just something natural in you that wants to tell it to others? I mean, taken as a rider, all the things we've said about feeling embarrassed, but when you start to grasp the power of the gospel and the content of the gospel, why would you not want to tell that to people? It is the most incredible news. The content of the gospel. Lastly then, the freeness of the gospel. Excuse me for my bad English. I did mention I was a rugby player, so it's the best I could do. The freeness of the gospel. The freeness of the gospel is given there. Turn back to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. Verse 17. A righteousness that is how? By faith, from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The gospel is totally free. There are no conditions on it. There are no barriers you have to overcome to accept the gospel is totally free. Well, really, there's one condition, that you will accept it with an empty hand. Faith is, of course, misunderstood nowadays, and even often as a Christian, I misunderstand faith. But faith is not about something I do. Faith is about an empty hand that will accept a gift given by God. Faith is like unwrapping the present. It is appropriating the gift for myself, receiving the gift. is nothing more than that. That is why the gospel grew so quickly 
That is why the gospel did penetrate out from Rome to the ends of the earth, because it could cross every cultural barrier, because you don't have to be born somewhere, you don't have to perform particular religious rites, you don't have to say a particular mantra. There are no conditions on the gospel except to receive it by faith. That is the only condition. And so it transcends every barrier that humanity can set up. It goes across every cultural distance. It goes, as we've been seeing this morning, right to the ends of India, to China, whoever they are. All they need to understand is what Jesus Christ has done for them and then to receive it by faith. It's so simple. And yet we make it so complicated sometimes, don't we? I speak to so many Christians and I say to them, are you a Christian? And they say, I'm trying. (laughs) Are you a Christian? I'm trying. I've not had a great week, but I'm trying. I'll try to be better next week. No, that's not faith. That's works. Faith is just to accept it. And that is the way we start the Christian life. And of course, that is the way we continue the Christian life. It is the way into the Christian life and the way on in the Christian life because the way in is the way on. Faith, from first to last. See how Paul emphasizes it? We receive it by faith, from first to last. The righteous will live, not start, the righteous will live by faith, day by day, moment by moment, week by week, year by year, until we die or until Jesus returns. We will live by faith. You know, it's not just um, religious people who are prone to trying hard, think that somehow faith is about what we do. If you go down to London at the moment with people having lost their jobs, when you speak to people, you say, you know, how are you going? They've lost their job. I've had quite a few friends who've said to me, Since my job's gone, I just don't know who I am anymore. Now, it's interesting because righteousness is a technical religious word. But righteousness in the secular sphere is the thing that you would trust in to feel justified. In fact, it's helpful, isn't it, that we translate righteousness as justified because sometimes we'll say to people, well, what is it that justifies you? Or we'll say, justify yourself to me. Or if you were doing a job interview, justify yourself to me. In fact, and I've got to mention it since I'm here and since part of... uh, Chariots of Fire was, of course, filmed here. That in the film Chariots of Fire, Harold Abrahams has that famous line where he says, he's the 100-meter sprinter going to the Olympics. He says, I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. Whether we're religious or not, we all have something we will be looking to to justify us. Something Paul would say and call our righteousness. Whether it's our good works, whether it's reading the Bible, whether it's praying, whether it's coming to church, whether it's coming to a certain type of church, or whether it's my job, or my career, or my relationship, or my house, or my possessions, or my popularity, or my status, there is something we'll be looking to that will say, I'm having a bad week, but at least I've got that. And when we look at that, that is the thing that wars against faith. That is the thing that threatens faith. Because we look at it and we say, I don't need faith because I've got that. I'm justified, right? I'm doing all right. I wonder this morning, of course, I won't ask anyone individually and embarrass them, but let me ask you generally. What is it that you look to to justify yourself before God? Is it faith? Faith alone? Faith in the saving work of Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection? Or is, as it so often is with me, faith plus? Faith plus, yeah, I work for a Christian organization. Faith plus, I've had a good week. Faith plus, I've told someone the good news of Jesus this week. Faith plus my career. Faith plus my looks, not a problem for me. Faith plus my wife. Faith plus my relationship. 
What is it that you try so hard to hold on to that you look to when you're having a bad week? Because sure as eggs is eggs, that will be the thing that you're looking to to justify yourself. But Paul says the righteous will live by faith and faith alone. Are you working hard at something or are you trusting God? And as I close, I want to suggest two applications of this passage to us. Two reasons, if you like, that if we don't put these into practice, that we may be ashamed of the gospel. The first one is to consider your own source of righteousness. You see, it's only as you grasp the full impact of the gospel that you really want to tell others about it and talk to them about it. Because otherwise, you start to believe the lies in your own head that actually you're justified by something else, by your righteousness, by your efforts. And so suddenly, you've got nothing to offer to people, right? So it's as the gospel impacts you that it naturally spills over into other people's lives and hearts. So what is it that you're looking to for your righteousness? Because if there is anything else you're looking at this morning apart from Jesus Christ, it will erode your confidence in the gospel. Consider what is your righteousness. Come back again this morning, maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time in a long time, come back again to the authentic gospel of righteousness through Jesus Christ and no other way. Rejoice in that with me this morning. Rejoice in it with Paul. And then let that overflow into telling others about Jesus. And secondly, consider how others really stand. I don't think I'm the only one who does this. I look at my friends and people I meet and I think, he looks so sorted. He's got everything, a good career, a nice girlfriend, a good flat, he's doing fine. He's a nice enough bloke, he's even sincere. He's even asked a few questions about Christianity. Surely he's okay. But I need to consider how he really stands, how she really stands before God. I need to look with the eyes of faith and see that they have no source of righteousness before God except the plea of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let's not be fooled by the spin of the world that says people are okay without Christ. They're not. The gospel is powerful to save. It gives us God's righteousness and is received by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us to not be ashamed of this gospel, this glorious good news, Lord, that you've given us, that you've made freely available to all who will trust and obey the call of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us confidence. Work on our failing and weakened hearts, Lord. You know how we're prone to back out and not to have confidence in the gospel. Please would we be so persuaded by your words this morning as your spirit takes them and plants them deep in our hearts that we would leave and go out for the rest of this week confident in the good news, rejoicing in what you've done for us through Jesus Christ and committed to talking to people about this glorious gospel. And we pray it not for our sake, but for Jesus' sake and for his glory. Amen.